Hello and welcome to the TES podcast. Uh, it's not an issue review, it's a very special podcast because it's been one hell of a week. It's been the budget and uh, the publishing of the uh, Education White Paper. Uh, my name is Richard Vaughan, host of the TES podcast, and I'm joined by William Stewart, news editor. Hello. And Ed Dorrell, head of content. Bonjour. Bonjour indeed. So, um, as I say, one heck of a week. Uh, William, can you give us a bit of a, an outline, some of the kind of major headlines that have come out from uh, from today and, of course, yesterday? I'll do my best. I mean, there's been, a, a, as you say, an enormous amount. A scrolling through our handy TES at a glance guide to the white paper that was published today. I mean, obviously yesterday, George Osborne sort of set the scene with the main headline, which was every school must be an academy by 2022 and have a plan in order by 2020. So huge change, huge organisational change to education, um, you know, which would be enough for kind of five years in itself. But if that wasn't enough, today we've got this white paper with lots, lots more. So as I say, scrolling through, big changes for Ofsted. Lots of teachers will welcome the fact that Ofsted are no longer, well, they're going to consult on it, but I'll be very surprised if it doesn't happen. They're no longer going to have separate grades on the quality of teaching. Um, there's going to be Ofsted holidays for for schools that are taken over, um, which is going to make them more attractive to the academy chains that are going to have to do that, which again brings us back to academisation, which we've chatted about a bit. Um, league tables for multi-academy trusts, yeah, that's a that's a really interesting one. It's um, it's going to be holding aca- uh, multi academy trusts and academies to heal to an even greater degree, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting. I mean, we just sort of scratched the surface. I mean, there are lots of other things mm. as well. But but some of the things we have talked about, I mean, people might see this as a very kind of ideological and changing things for the sake of it. But what's interesting are there are kind of changes that have they're kind of. Neatening, neatening things up they're addressing a lot of things that have been people have complained about along the way so for example are mats being held accountable um the the offset issue that we've already talked about the offset holidays was, was something economy change um were concerned about there's a big change in terms of who's going to be responsible for alternative provision so by making mainstream schools responsible for pupils in alternative provision, that could have very far-reaching mm. consequences. So some of these measures are quite thoughtful and even potentially quite quite progressive. Yeah, it's not all doom and gloom, is it? There's actually some positive notes in there. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't want to say whether they're positive or negative, but but they're not necessary. Not everything's the direction that that people might expect it to go. And also. It's a lot of change, but there does some of the th- there does seem to be some kind of coherence. You know, a lot of the things fit together. I mean, in theory, the obviously with change this big, mm. it, it, the upheaval involved may, may mean that a lot of that coherence disappears very quickly. Absolutely. Before I go over to you, Ed, um, I managed to catch up with uh, Sir David Carter, who's National Schools Commissioner, to get his thoughts uh, and to basically get a, a bit of practical advice um, from the new NSC. Uh, he said, and his overall message was, don't panic to head teachers. Um, here's David Carter setting out his thoughts. So I think this is this is a time for head teachers and for schools to pause and reflect on the role that they can play in this school-led system. 
Um, I, th I think whilst there's a very clear ambition to uh, get every school on track to becoming an academy by 2020, I don't think there should be a rush and there certainly shouldn't be a panic. Uh, I think great decisions require time to consider the options and understand what the needs of that particular school and that particular community it serves are going to be for the next five to ten years. So I think the most helpful advice I could give as National Schools Commissioner is for people to begin those conversations in their communities, but understanding that this is an opportunity to work differently as we go forward. Forward. So what should a head teacher do then? I mean, what would be the, the first priority for them, um, given, given what's just been announced? So I, th I think that starts and finishes with a conversation about the best outcomes for children. Uh, the white paper is called Education Excellence Everywhere for a reason, because it's about making sure that the next generation of children get the best uh, outcomes that any generation of child has ever had in a school. And so I think any conversations that happen have got to be about what's best for children. But the principle that underpins the white paper and this whole journey around academization and multi-academy trust development is it's based on the principle of placing decisions decision-making responsibility for what happens in all of our classrooms in the country in the hands of no, those people who know their children the best, and that's the people who teach the children, who lead those schools, and those governors that work alongside them. What about the, the, the schools and the head teachers who were quite happy with the, the services that were being provided by local authorities? Um, what should they do now? Well, I think I think there is a, the, the the same answer applies. I think there is something very very powerful about when you change the structure of something. It shouldn't just be the structural change that uh, that underpins the conversation. It's about doing things differently to produce better outcomes. Um, and whilst we have some amazingly good schools in the in the system, um, even the best schools will always have things that they can be better at. And and because we are working in an educational system which is about educating young people, uh, and we as adults uh, go to school every day and think about what that means. There's a challenge because uh, schools don't stand still. They are often improving or they're declining, but they're not standing still. And so the very, even those really strong schools who have demonstrated that in the current system that they have performed well cannot take for granted that in five or ten years they'll be in the same position. So I think this is very much about um, probably the first time in my experience in 32 years we've ever taken a completely fresh look at what kind of education system we want and how do we want to deliver it. And those conversations about those schools that are in that camp as you described it should be talking about collaboration they should be thinking about the capacity of their school to offer support to other schools they should be thinking about the capacity of their school to maybe set up a multi-academy trust or join one we're seeing more and more examples of good and outstanding local authority maintained schools converting to become an academy not be to be specifically become an academy but because they want to be the school improvement arm in a multi-academy trust uh, and my vision for the education system as long as I'm in the National Schools Commission role is that we see every school being a giver and every school being a receiver of support. And I think it's that collaborative content, that collaborative culture that is going to make this, this, uh, this education system world class. What about those schools which are in the hard to reach areas, though? What, what about those schools who, who, who may actually be open to the idea of um, uh, joining a mat, but there isn't one uh, or there aren't many knocking down the door to, to, to go and work with them? I'm talking in the kind of the rural and the coastal areas. What about those schools? What should head teachers do there? Yeah, I think that's a really fair point because I think the challenge of rurality and the, and and rurality often linked to coastal isolation is 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 a challenge for this policy. 
Um, but we have that challenge today, and uh, and we've got to, I think, be really creative and flexible about how we how we resolve that. I mean, in the rural locations, we're often talking about very small primary schools, um, and where those small primary schools are very much the hub of that community. Um, and, and the school down the road, four or five miles away, is another small primary school that's the hub of their community. So I think in those examples, the multi-academy trust solution is a really good lever for helping those schools work together because the isolation is not through choice sometimes, it's through practical reality of geography. Uh, and if we can create school partnerships, formal and informal, where those schools that are isolated ge geographically can find ways to work differently than they have in the past, I think that would be a real breakthrough for our system. And my concern is that those will be the schools that might get left behind here. So again, in my role as National Schools Commissioner working with the RSCs, I want to make those schools our priority and have those conversations with them very early so that we make sure that we build those collaborative partnerships that help them sustain their success. So what will be the line of communication then for these head teachers? Should, should they be going directly to the regional school commissioner? Should they be going, who, who should they speak to in order to, to, to A, find reassurance, but also find the kind of the practical advice in order to, to go forward? Well, I think there's a, there's a range of people that schools of all types, irrespective of their context, should be talking to as part of that discussion I described uh, earlier in this conversation. Um, I think there is a role for local authorities here because I think the local authorities know those schools. They'll, they'll have knowledge of the history of those schools. They'll have knowledge of which clusters work well, which clusters are not working quite so well. So I certainly think the local authorities have a role to play here. There is no doubt that the regional schools commissioners have an oversight review of that and, and some of the thinking should be tested with those. If I was ahead of a local authority maintained school starting out on this journey, the first telephone call I would make would be to two or three multi-academy trusts in my area, not necessarily to join them, but to find out how they operate. Because I think one of the challenges that we have in our education system is to talk about the benefits of multi-academy trust from the classroom up, not from the policy down. So I think those head teachers would be really well advised to go and make those school, school visits, make those contacts, talk to people who've been on that journey and understand what the benefits are, but also what the challenges are as well that they're going to have to overcome. And when it comes to the, the mats themselves, there was obviously a very interesting line in the white paper today about um, possible uh, publishing of performance tables for mats. How, who, will, who will have control over that and how do you see that working? Well, I think part of the transparency agenda that, uh, that Nikki Morgan, the Secretary of State, has talked a lot about since she came into office uh, includes how we articulate the system, what great multi-academy trusts do and what they don't do. Uh, and I think that works in, in a number of ways. Uh, I think uh, if you're looking at the sustainability of multi-academy trusts and how well they're performing, you have to look at track record. You have to look at whether or not the schools that have joined those trusts are doing better as a result of that partnership than they were before. Um, and I think there is overwhelming evidence that that's true. There are some high-profile examples that, that don't portray that evidence, but we mustn't pretend that, uh, that we can build a policy and assume a policy is working on the basis of the ones that aren't working. 39% uh, of our multi-academy trusts are in the three to five bracket. They're small, they're small groups, and some of them are doing extremely well. So I think there's something very powerful about, uh, about being able to articulate what that looks like uh, in, in, in that way. But I also think that uh, there is something about understanding uh, the scale of challenge and that leading in a multi-academy trust is different to leading a single school. So I think being able to find a way in which we can articulate that to the system, I think, is, is, is really important.
Which is one final question then. Uh, capacity is obviously the big thing. It's the big question that a lot of people are asking. Where's that capacity going to come from? Do you think we have capacity now? Uh, and if not, how many multi-academy trusts do you think we'll need in order to meet capacity levels? Um, so that won't surprise you to know that that's a question that I'm working on uh, quite hard at the moment. Uh, I was even doing it before we started this conversation because I think I think we do have that capacity there. But I think we have to think about uh, capacity in terms of the viability of the size of multi-academy trusts. And I think it will be difficult uh, to reach this goal if every multi-academy trust is made up of two or three small primary schools. I just don't think those numbers will be viable. Uh, and I think we need to have a, a discussion with the system about the number of children that you need in a trust rather than the number of schools to look at what the viability will be with that. But I do believe the capacity is there. There are some. I think we've got the best generation of leaders in our schools I've ever known, not just at the head teacher level, but in senior teams at middle leadership. And I think there is a real appetite from people working in schools and the, the schools that I visit, certainly, to work with the school down the road and the school that's a bit further away. So I think there is capacity in the system. Uh, and I think this is the time for us to have a look at that. And when we have, I think, the uh, the real quality that I believe that we've got in our system uh, unleashed, uh, I think uh, we'll see all, every one of our 21,000 schools uh, enabling every child to make fantastic progress irrespective of their start in life. And that's the ultimate test of this. David Carter there. Um, so he's saying don't panic. Um, it's a huge change, though, isn't it? I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a seismic shift for, for the school landscape. Ed, what, what do you think? Well, I think um, a majority of secondaries are already academies, so maybe not so earth-shattering at that level. But at primary level, where only a very small percentage have made the switch, there will be, whatever David Carter says about panicking or not panicking, some fairly major panicking going on. That panicking will be about, at one level, will be about the practicalities of, hell, we've got to become an academy within six years. But there will also be a philosophical level where... Primary schools, I think, and this is a big generalisation, are more wedded to the local authority family of schools, are more wedded to um, the support that they get from the local authority in the in the high-performing authorities. And the angriest people I speak to about the academisation tend to be at the primary level. So you are looking at uh, you're looking at a sector which is going to be uh, scratching its head, good and proper right now. And I think it's not just philosophical or, or, or you know, just, just changing the idea of what you do. I think there's real jeopardy out there. Or if you listen to some of the representatives of small primaries, if you read uh, tomorrow's TES magazine, we, we kind of, obviously we knew what was happening in the budget, so we talked to small primaries about what it would mean. And there are real fears that when they're taken over by mats that they could just disappear. So if you're a big mat and you, you take over some rural primary schools... And you know, obviously, times are tight financially. Might might it be easier to, in in the fullness of time, to close one? Mm. And people are saying, you know, that that's already started to happen. So, so I think a lot of people are going to be really scared. I mean, the the other thing that occurs to me is at a time when you've got all this change going on anyway. You know, changing primary assessment, changes to exams, teacher shortages, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We all know the list. How much energy a school is going to have to spend on introducing these academy plans, working out who they want to go with, what happens if they don't? I, I think that's personally that that would be my, that would be the issue I'd raise. The, 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 never mind the rights and wrongs, just the time and energy and, and expense this is, involved. This is very much the point I've been making to almost anyone who'll listen. 
you are looking at a hugely profound change to the entire structure of English education with, as you say, really serious repercussions. Now, admittedly, it has had some coverage in the national press and on TV, but if you imagine the same wholesale restructuring going on in the NHS, can you imagine the coverage and the uproar? It is amazing to this day how much politicians think or can get away with changing with very little pushback beyond the profession. I, d- I think a lot of it is because of the academy thing, because people are so used, uh, there's so been consensus that academies are a good thing, political across the main parties. So what if you say you want more of them, people don't really see it as such a big change. Mm-hmm. And I think, mm-hmm. as you say, the point about primary schools, people just think, oh, academy's already there. I think maybe... Maybe, maybe the kind of political, the the journalistic class, the people that write about this don't quite realise what a big thing it's going to be. I think it's it shows also the bias towards the secondary sector, doesn't it? Because yeah. so often it dominates, and actually it's the smaller part, it, it, smaller in, in inverted commas, smaller part of the school system, isn't it? Um, bias towards London as well. I bet you have more, I'm sorry, talking off the top of my head, I'd imagine you have a lot more uh, primary academies in London than, 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 you, than you will do in the shires, where people are happy with local authorities. I think it's quite a metropolitan thing as well. I think it's worth saying, in the spirit of journalistic neutrality, that there are some really interesting maps out there doing some really interesting Absolutely. work at primary level, sharing best practice. And, you know, we wouldn't want to be seen <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, no. and, saying and that, that one, one structure is better than the other. No, no, oh, of course so, not. Yeah. Um, you know, we could rattle off names for as long as my arm, but... Um, there is a serious question, though, about uh, capacity, uh, and that's the kind of the big, how are you going to do this? And speaking to Sir David Carter, he was bullish uh, about uh, that the capacity was already there. He said, I, you know, I think we'll be able to do this. I mean, obviously, he has to say that. Sorry. He has already said that you're going to need about 1,000 more mats by 2020. And um, and now you can see why. I mean, this is before this announcement was made. I mean, we all, we all know it's been a rough ambition, but all of a sudden, when you know it's going to happen, with the timescales, yeah. Um, and, and the reason, the point, though, is that is this, though, isn't it? That teachers and schools will do it. Yes. Because and they will keep educating kids. Uh, you know, the capacity of teachers to reinvent themselves under pressure from central government to reform the endless reformers. Oh, I called it in a piece earlier today. The Marxist phrase "permanent revolution" yeah, absolutely. is amazing. They still keep teaching and keep turning out kids who can read, write, and get their GCSEs. Absolutely, and and improving. Um, but it's not all about academisation either. I mean, there was other stuff in there. One real standout was the changes to uh, to teacher training um, and the the kind of it wasn't so much a scrapping, was it? it was a kind of reforming of uh, newly qualified teachers? Is that right? Yeah, of qualified teacher status. Qualified so teacher, so. You know, generally after you do a year, you become a qualified teacher, and and basically now, as much as I understand it, I've been using a lot of stories today, but it's it's going to be down to schools to decide when teachers are ready. So, so I guess that the government would argue that's a more rigorous system and that's going to raise standards. I guess if I was a, a teacher, a, a newly qualified, sorry, a, a trainee teacher, I might worry: is this going to mean that it takes me longer to get paid more? And I guess you might also wonder what's this going to do about teacher recruitment, which is obviously the big backdrop to a lot of what's mm. going on. That's the kind of instinctive question, is yeah. it? 
Is it fiddling while Rome burns when it comes to teacher supply? Yeah. yeah. It also, also looks like they're going to change the um, the system of um, uh, recruiting teacher trainees, which I think is generally generally seen as having been a disaster by yeah. teacher training providers because you know there's shortages. Yet the providers haven't been able to take um, to take the train get the trainees that schools need. So that's another thing that's been the government would hope is being tidied up. In this, so it's pretty wide-ranging. Absolutely. Uh, I also managed to get hold of um, Russell Hobby, who is a General Secretary of the National Association of Head Teachers, to get head teachers' point of view, uh, or certainly a head teachers' representative point of view. Um, this is what Russell had to say. Okay. Um, so what we've had is a, a series of announcements in two blocks, to be honest. We've had a budget and a white paper. There's a lot in the white paper which is quite sensible. Not all of it, but there's some sensible stuff in there that you'd welcome, like the Ofsted holiday. Um, but all of that is overshadowed by the announcement on academies that preceded it through the budget. Um, and in some ways, it's cathartic to have it out in the open, but we, don't, we do know now that every school must have a plan to become an academy by 2020, uh, and that plan must be completed by 2022. And there are a large number of schools who doubt the evidence for the impact of this. Um, that they will say that um, the evidence for the impact of academies is, is very mixed. There are good and bad academies, just like there are good and bad maintained schools. This is going to occupy an enormous chunk of our time. Uh, it's going to distract us from teaching and learning for something that we don't really want to do. Is this the best way we could be spending our time as a system? So it's quite hard to engage with some of the positive aspects of the white paper when we have to deal with the, the universal academization. Isn't this, though... It's kind of a, a a full stop and start of a new chapter. I mean, people have been saying, I think even Sir Michael Wilshaw said, just just get on with it, turn every school into an academy so we can stop having this conversation about structures and get on to the real important nitty-gritty stuff about raising standards. Shouldn't, shouldn't we just kind of embrace this and now move on? I can understand that point of view. Um, and I think that once every school was an academy, uh, we could probably start calling them schools again. Um, and... It might remove the shield that the government has from dealing properly with place planning, recruitment and funding because they can always divert attention to the academies debate. I can see that, but I think that's easy for people outside the system to say. There's a large number of people who've now got to spend two or three years wrenching their schools from the direction in which they were travelled onto, onto a new one. And I don't think we should underestimate the cost of that. And I know not every head will be worried uh, about this. Some of them are planning to convert straight away. But I think there are also a large number of school leaders in very small schools who are, are seeing the support taken away without a positive vision of what can replace it. Yeah, I mean, th th that's the the biggest question, I suppose, isn't it? I mean, it's how will this be done? Um, it's, it's not a huge amount of time. As you say, you have to have a plan in place by 2020 and then uh, everyone's an academy by, by 2022. Where's the capacity going to come from? And what kind of practical advice would you give head teachers who now are, are faced with this when maybe they didn't want to do so in, in, in the first place? Yeah, and I think the capacity concerns are the, are the, big, are the big issue uh, on this. There's not a bunch of people queuing up to lead schools or to sponsor schools at the moment. And it's often the most vulnerable who are the most neglected. Now, my first piece of advice to school leaders is, first of all, don't be bounced into this. Um, you say it's not a, a long period of time, but it's not a rush either. Um, they will already be getting emails from law firms uh, inviting to, them to help them convert the process. Don't panic into it. Step back. Keep control of your own agenda on this one. You've got the time to do this. 
Um, and I think that, that decisions made in haste will be repented later on. So that's the first and most important thing. The other thing I, that I think is important to hold on to is that when you're given freedom, you can choose what to do with it. Um, and you don't have to behave in a competitive, fragmented manner. You don't have to do what people expect. If there are things that you want to protect and preserve in the way the system works at the moment, then you can use your freedom to do so. Uh, and so one option is to say, OK, um, let's get together. Let's get all of the schools together. Let's look at what we wanted in the local authority. Uh, let's protect and preserve that um, and create an environment in which we sort of embed our own ethics into the structures we're creating. I think you need some time, you need to be able to reflect, you need to not do that in a panic. But I think a lot of what people value can be sustained through this if they choose to use their initiative uh, on this one. That still, to me, doesn't help those that are isolated and, and don't have a set of support around them. Yeah, it almost seems that they're, they're kind of running out of levers that they could possibly use in order to, to reach those schools. Yes, I think that uh, the austerity measures that are pertaining in our system, um, the sort of weakening of central government direct power leaves them with very few things to, to, to get to change behavior. They've got league tables, they've got inspection, um, there's not a lot else on that. But of course, if you overuse accountability, you get the sort of high risk, fear dominated culture that we have in so much of education uh, at the moment. And we don't really have good answers to what strikes me as some of the really pressing problems of our time. How do we ensure there are enough places? How do we ensure there are enough teachers to teach the, the pupils in those places? Uh, and where is the money to put a roof over their head going to come from? Um, school leaders can solve a lot by themselves, but they, those three questions at least uh, are central government's responsibility. You kind of, you mentioned one aspect there, which is what I wanted to, to get just a few thoughts from you on, is um, it, it is the recruitment and holding on to, on to teachers. Um, Obviously, they're changing um, uh, well. they're scrapping qualified teacher status, uh, going to make it more challenging for, for teachers or wannabe teachers to become accredited. At the time of a, a, a teacher shortage, is that the wisest uh, path to go down, do you think? Well, I'm not entirely sure that scrapping QTS is, is, is the right way. I think it's a reform uh, of QTS. Like, there will be a qualification um, it will be awarded in a different way over a different period of time. And my understanding of it is that the vision we have here is a bit more like the legal profession or the medical profession, where your full qualification is also dependent to a degree on your, your experience of, of, of working inside the school environment. So we're talking about schools having a stronger role to play in the awarding of QTS slightly later into the period. I don't think that that has to hurt recruitment if it's done properly. Uh, and in some respects, I think it's probably a sensible move. And just more broadly, I mean, are there signs for uh, encouragement then in, in what you've seen from the white paper so far? I realise it's still quite, you know, and it's only just been published today, but are you encouraged at all by what you've seen? Yes, and I've dwelt, I've dwelt on the sort of the negative aspects provoked by the, the academisation, but there's much in the white paper that we would we would look to and, and, and be pleased uh, with. Um, we see at last... Uh, people starting to talk about capacity building uh, and how you connect schools back together again from the fragmentation that we have. So, you know, I would pick out the support for the College of Teaching uh, as being positive. I would pick out that Ofsted window where you get some space to turn a school around uh, and some of the other changes to Ofsted in terms of the teaching and learning judgment. Uh, I would pick out the, the reference to the Foundation for Leadership in Education, um, which will be able to take on the, the leadership qualifications and the development of school leaders. 
there are a number of things in there um, that I think are potentially quite positive and, and we mustn't ignore those. Russell Hobby there. Um, so, chaps, it's been a, it's, it's the end of a very long day. Um, I think a pint of Guinness is deserved for each and every one of us uh, on St. Patrick's Day. Um, I'm going to leave it there, but obviously this is going to rumble on and on and yeah. on. This has got a lot of legs, as we say in the business. Absolutely. Um, so, obviously, keep... Your eye out on uh, the the TES uh, news website. Obviously, there's going to be plenty of stuff in not just tomorrow's TES, but probably in next week's as well. Yep, definitely. And online updates all the time. Keep watching. Absolutely. And uh, that just leaves me to say thank you to Will, to Ed, to Sir David Carter, to Russell Hobby, and to all of you out there. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks and goodbye. goodbye.